This episode has been brought to you in part by the Azrieli Music Prizes. Join them in celebrating artistic excellence at the AMP Gala Concert, live from Maison Symphonique in Montreal, happening October 20th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Orchestre Metropolitain will premiere award-winning music by laureates Aharon Harla, Iman Habibi, and Rita Ueda. Learn more at azrielifoundation.org backslash AMP. This is Bonjour Chai, the Tabernacle. Kanye better not come to my sukkah edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Montreal. And David Sklar in Calgary, we are your frozen chosen. It is Sukkot, yes. The holidays keep rolling along, and as we sit in our temporary dwellings, yes, I'm in my sukkah right now, we are going to discuss housing. Many Jews struggle with being able to afford even basic rent. We will speak to Mara Schnee about her experiences and about how the Jewish community is responding to the issue. And, of course, the absolute last, final, and maybe the best round of the Great Canadian Sermon Slam. Alana, David, how's your Sukkot been? It's been very uh, busy, actually. My sleep schedule is totally off because it's like two days of Yuntif and then two days of Cholmoed and two days of Yuntif. And I'm like, I don't know what time it is. I don't know what day it is. My body is all off. But um, it's been really nice being in the sukkah, but I keep not being sure how to dress because the first night was so cold. And then the mm-hmm. next day I dressed the same, like I wore a winter hat and my winter coat, and then I was boiling because it was actually nicer out. So, you know, it's it's a struggle, but Zman um, Simchatenu, enjoying my time uh, in various sukkahs uh, around the city. How about you? I think Sukkot must be very challenging for Canadian Jews as opposed to Mexican Jews or Israelis. Yeah, well, my, my, my sister-in-law brought up that point about how her parents once went to Israel for Sukkot, and they were like, you know what? This actually makes sense now. True, I understand true. why we do this. <laughs> yeah, you know, Sukkot can be a challenge in our northern climate, but uh, that's uh, maybe our challenge. This is what we do. Um, and so we don't sleep in the sukkah, and we maybe have uh, meals a little bit m- more quickly so that our soup doesn't get, uh, you know, frozen out and turn into, you know, gazpacho. Um, but I don't know. I enjoy it. I like being out. And there are years when it's warm and it's absolutely beautifully pleasant and it's just that it's late this year and it happens to be a particularly cold nights um for Sukkot it has been cold at nights um but the days have been nice today it looks like it's a bit windier and so you might hear some wind and some rustling um but the sukkah is still standing and uh, I'm still in it and enjoying and uh I don't know I like it I I, I mean I how's your experience (laughs) been Avi you're 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 there for for most of the day I imagine you're in it right now Hmm. I mean, no, I thought it would be fun to record. I am in my sukkah right now. I'm not hanging out all day in my sukkah. I come here for meals. We're having a a sukkah party Saturday night where, you know, when we host things, if it's not raining, we come into the sukkah. But I do not sleep in the sukkah. I don't just sit here and, you know, read for hours on end. Sometimes I do. I don't know. uh, if it's a nice afternoon. Um, but no, I don't live, live, live in the sukkah the way that some people do, but I do the most that I can. Um, and I do uh, while I, uh, you know, and I enjoy it. Avi, you, you mentioned that, you know, a lot of Jews invite people to their sukkah. And obviously we just passed this weekend. It was Thanksgiving where a lot of non-Jews are celebrating Thanksgiving, coming together as family. One thing I, I want to bring up is Jews normally growing up... Uh, 
Well, this is my question, right? Because Jews in America celebrate American Thanksgiving. Uh, growing this up as true. a Canadian Jew, we never celebrated Canadian Thanksgiving. And we only I only started celebrating it when I moved out here to Calgary with John's family. Now I'm I'm doing it more and more. But growing up, was it like was that same for for you both? I never did Thanksgiving. I, I did not either, um, but I partially also was in a very religious school, and they definitely wouldn't have even celebrated an American Thanksgiving. Um, I think that is true. I think there's a lot of truth to the fact that uh, I wasn't expecting my first year living in the U.S. to be celebrating American Thanksgiving, and I did, because I realized that everybody was doing it, and I was invited you know, to, to somebody's house, and uh, I've been invited since to different places. We started hosting Thanksgiving. Um, yeah, we actually try to celebrate American Thanksgiving because my wife is American and she, she likes it and she has it every year. And she, we, we keep trying to invite Americans who miss it to come to our house for American Thanksgiving. Last year we had Thanksgiving Shabbat, which was like, I guess, a day later. But we still did all the Thanksgiving food and I made stuffing and I made turkey and I made, you know, cranberry sauce from scratch. But that was around the American Thanksgiving. It's interesting. And, uh, yeah, I think this is the first time that I remember... It's probably not like at all, you know, the, the first time ever. But I, it's the first time that I remember that Thanksgiving was on uh, Sukkot. Um, so, okay. so yeah, that's interesting. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I like this like, idea. Why of is it? it why, do, why do you think that is? That why, Cana- why the Jews don't celebrate? celebrate it as yeah. I, I think, think that I think Canadians in general don't celebrate Thanksgiving as much, and because it yeah. was smaller as a holiday, then Jews were like, yeah, I can take it or leave it. I guess I'm going to leave it. I always That's saw it as thought. us being less patriotic, but then I realized it's because I lived in Quebec. <laughs> like the same way that when I moved to BC um, and went to other parts of Canada and was like, wow, there's a lot of Canadian flags everywhere. I didn't know that Canadians even cared about Canada to put a flag on their front lawn. And then I was like, right, I grew up in Quebec. <laughs> what I do enjoy is that it, because of the timing of us having a harvest festival at the time of other people having a harvest festival, you walk down the street and you see decorations that look like they could be kind of Sukkot-like, like the 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 corn and the pumpkins, and it's like that, you know, gourds oh, feels like Sukkot. My favorite article from uh, McSweeney's, um, it's one of the top humor articles, I think, of all time. It's this guy, uh, I'm just going to say, it, it's, it was a humor piece called It's Decorative Gourd Season Again, Motherfuckers, and it's like this guy who's all like bro-ish, but he's like all over buying decorative gourds and uh, turning his house into a rustic autumn paradise. And uh, I see Alana trying not to laugh because she just had some water. I'm sorry that I did it at that moment, but you should all, all go good. read that. It's a great um, um, article for, for this, this time. It's a nice, funny piece. Uh, anyways, let's move on to our guest. Um, but before that, let us hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. One of my favorite teachings about Sukkot is from Rabbi Alan Lou, who we have heard about in the past on Bonjour Chai. He connects Tisha B'Av and Sukkot by using them as bookends for the high holidays. We begin with mourning for the brokenness of our spiritual home, the temple in Jerusalem, and we end with the rejoicing in a temporary home that is fragile and one step away from always being broken, the Sukkah. 
Sitting in a sukkah for a week and being okay with the world and ourselves is part of the process. We know there is still work to be done. We know that what we do, we know that we do what we can, and we are able to let go of the rest of it. But for many in our community, that sentiment is not limited to the week of Sukkot, and they are unable to relax because their housing situation is fragile and insecure the rest of the year as well. How should the Jewish community address these issues? What are our responsibilities? How do we help when many who are experiencing a housing crisis are often invisible? With us to talk about this is Mara Schnee. Mara is a founding member of the JFS Advisory Committee in Vancouver and developed a project called Hear Us, We Are Here with Jewish Family Services in Vancouver. Mara, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Excellent. Can you start by telling us a bit about your story and how you came to this project? So I guess the beginning of my story is that I suffer from a disabling illness, which means that I can't work. So I lived in subsidized housing. And then in July of 2019, there was a problem with broken pipes and flooding and mold that made my apartment unlivable and also meant that I had to let go of all my possessions. Because I'd been living in subsidized housing and was low income, I couldn't find any place else to live. And basically rent for any place I was looking at was more than my monthly income. And even if it wasn't, no landlord would rent to me because I wasn't working. I went through a period of eight months of being homeless until I got into some temporary housing. And that eight months, I, I think you really pegged it when you did your intro and you talked about being okay with where you are in a temporary living space and how that's not the case for people who are permanently in that situation or in that situation for a long time. It was an unbelievably horrible experience uh, and also to deal with it while also dealing with disabling illness and heart surgery in the middle of it. And when I finally got into temporary housing, I found myself bursting into tears five or six times a day, which is not my norm. And I found myself having episodes of just being frozen in place and unable to move and filled with terror. And I realized I clearly needed some uh, mental health help, but I started wondering, like, am I the only person to react to this type of situation like this? What's it, what's it like for other people? Because the other thing about being homeless is that you're not connecting with other people and, and you are really isolated. So I had this thought that, well, what's it like for other Jews? What do they go through? Are they having the same experience as I am? So I approached JFS and the Federation, and they funded a small project where I did in-depth interviews with Jews in the community in Vancouver who either currently were or had been homeless or at high risk of homelessness. And I spoke to about 50 people who all answered my call for interviewees and then picked nine people who all had very different stories, very different ways they became homeless. And 
I was curious about what their stories were. Like, how did they become homeless? And then for the people who are now housed, I was curious, what was the impact on you? And what's your life like now? And what do you have to say to the community? What are the needs that you had that weren't met? So first of all, thank you so much for sharing that personal story. I would like to define um, what homelessness looks like, because I think a lot of people have a very specific vision in their head of, you know, someone, I mean, I lived in Vancouver for a while, so I can make these references, but, you know, let's say someone on Hastings or um, in, in a more rundown part of the community and drug problems. And I'm sure that that is the case for a lot of people who are homeless, but, um, homelessness can also, from what I understand, expand out to people who might even just be staying on a friend's couch for three months because they simply have nowhere to go. So can you just um, give us some examples of what homelessness could mean in, in the way that you put together your survey? Yes. So one of the big things I found out was that actually the majority of Jews in our community did not fit into that typical model of addiction or mental health issues on the downtown east side. A few of the people I interviewed do, did, but homelessness, for example, for me, it was staying in other people's houses and getting a variety of temporary accommodations, anywhere from one night to a week to one place I stayed for two months. And it really, so so homelessness looks very different for different people. There's one woman I interviewed who is uh, a mother who fled an abusive situation with a disabled son. And so she had spent one night in a shelter that just because her son has autism, there was no way it could work. She ended up staying with friends. She ended up in a very similar situation to mine, which several people did, staying with friends and then house sitting and then dog sitting and a variety of different things. And so I think that's really an important thing that you brought up because people have this image and idea of what being homeless is. And that's not actually true. That's a small percentage of the people who are homeless. And then also specifically in Vancouver, there are a lot of people who are living in cars and vans and RVs. And there were several people I spoke to who were in that situation. And one person who I interviewed who lived in his RV. You know, we have a, um, there's a sermon coming up actually later on in the program as a part of a series of sermons that is incredibly moving and involves uh, somebody t- uh, talking about their own experience and how um, Jews often have a very difficult time visiting services within the Jewish community, meaning that Jews who are dealing with a housing crisis um, often are very reluctant to go to JFS or whatever it is that exists in their city. Um, Can you um, briefly speak to us, you know, about that and about how JFS does work to sort of say there, you know, there shouldn't be a stigma attached to going and asking for help. Um, Getting help within the community can be, you know, a viable solution and what solutions um, various, uh, at least is available, are available in Vancouver. 
Okay. I think when it comes to getting services and asking for services from organizations like JFS, I think people have an initial hesitation. And especially when it comes to things like the Jewish Food Bank here in Vancouver or asking for home health care support. However, with housing, I think when people find themselves in a housing crisis, everyone around them will say, have you gone to JFS? Have you gone to JFS? And they will. Um, so I know that JFS has hundreds of people on their wait list for help with housing that actually they, they can't help them. The, the sad truth of the situation around housing in Vancouver, especially, although I'm sure it's like this in other cities in Canada, is that there are limited resources. And even though JFS is a wonderful organization and they really do a good job, but honestly, they couldn't help me much with my housing situation. And they do help some people there are some housing projects in the city that are geared mainly at the Jewish community. And JFS definitely helps get people into those housing situations. So in Vancouver, you have what's uh, Tikva, the Tikva Society. But there's Tikva, there's a few seniors building. Mm-hmm. Um, Montreal has the Kahila in Montreal, and there are other programs yeah. similar that, that exist elsewhere, yeah. Yes, but the supply does not meet the need. Mm-hmm. And and I think there are also growing pains as organizations try and figure out how to support people. I think the big thing that's missing in the housing story in Vancouver is not just that we desperately need housing, which is the number one need, but all the other aspects around homelessness and housing crisis, like, for example, after someone moves into a place and they're deeply traumatized or they have no furniture or just before they end up homelessness, homeless, where let's say they're facing eviction or they end up in a temporary crisis and they have to leave their home for a month or two, there's no place for them to go. And there's no support. So I think that's also a really important piece. Right. And I'm sure you're not an expert on this situation, but as we see constantly in news articles and reports, this is becoming a significant problem across the country, whether it's within the Jewish community or just in general, how housing is becoming more and more affordable in all of our major cities. Um I just wonder, is there anything that more that the Jewish federations or the Jewish community should be doing or could be doing, or should it be left up more to the individual? You know, we've talked about NIMBYism across in Toronto and in Vancouver as well, but I'm just wondering if there's a way to shift individual focuses to sort of say, how can we help? How can we start changing to make housing more affordable in all of our cities? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> and I don't think... And I have a lot of different... <laughs> yeah. If, I know this isn't your field of expertise. I, I just know this is what you experienced. So if there's anything that you saw that could really help um, help or hinder people, um, because it's just going to become a greater and greater problem for more and more people as, as the years go by, as I see it. Absolutely. I think it will be 
a bigger problem. And yes, I'm not an expert, but one of the questions I asked in my survey were was um, I asked people, what ideas do you have for you can for your community? What do you think would help? So some of the ideas I've had and that other people have had include, yes, absolutely more money going to housing organizations would be really helpful. But also people looking at individually, are there things we can do? So for example, people that have basement suites, some of them desperately need as much rent as they can get. But would some of them, who maybe it's just a little bit of extra income, would they consider charging a lower rent and getting vetted tenants from Jewish Family Services who did not have addiction or mental health issues, who were going to be good tenants, where Jay or non-worrisome, or even if they did have those issues, that JFS or some other organization would provide supports to help them be good tenants. So are there people in our community with basement suites who could do that? Or people in the community who own apartment buildings who maybe could allocate one apartment in their building as a low-cost unit. Also, I think there's a real role for individuals. As someone who regularly goes to shul and has a lot of contacts within my community, I know I got really frustrated when people who I would talk to about my situation, and I was desperate, would all say, have you gone to JFS? And then one couple who weren't really close friends of mine, but who I'd known for a while, they said, well, you can come stay with us for a while. And I stayed with them for five or six weeks. And for that brief period of time, that was the only time I felt safe. And they were so emotionally supportive. And or people who, let's say, don't have a spare room that they could house someone for a while or, or you know, they don't know them. It's not a comfortable situation. If you meet someone in, in the, who's going to shul beside you in your community, maybe you can offer something like, I don't know, come to dinner at my house for a few nights a week so you don't have to deal with food. I think... I think there is absolutely that importance of supporting organizations like the Federation, supporting organizations like TICFA. But I think on a personal level, people as Jews, and I'm forgetting the quote here in Hebrew, but it's something along the lines of we're all Jews are responsible for each other. I personally would love to see more people in the community take that view of, are there small ways that I can help? I had one friend that, because it was so stressful, offered to look through Craigslist housing, Craigslist ads for me every day and send me a Mm -hmm. short list. You know, what I'm finding fascinating about what you're saying is, you know, I, I've been talking to people um, involved in Kahila, people involved in all sorts of things for the past couple of weeks uh, leading up to this discussion. And, 
you know, you hear that the developers themselves are saying, oh, well, I'm giving of my time and my energy to these organizations to help. Um, and um, the reality is that we should be taking money from other places. The government is very difficult to, to, to work with. There's too many, too much red tape that is involved with getting subsidized housing through the government and uh, being unable to work with it in the private community. So you have this high level discussion of what's going on at the federation level, but you're also pointing out the fact that we cannot, um, ignore the fact that the people um, at the ground level are the ones, right? It's not a high-level situation to be solved. It's also a low-level situation to be solved. And that those two can are always in dialogue with each other. It's, you know, the the line that people talk about, uh, uh, nothing about us without us. Um, I, I really wonder how often homeless people or people who are in housing crisis are often left behind without getting the opportunity to be interviewed by somebody like you to... Um, to get their ideas voiced in this sort of way um, and whether or not um, what we are doing is actually useful or not. Like, for example, um, you know, and this is something small, and I, I think that this is a good thing. Uh, my daughter, who has giving, like, in the core of her being, insists that we always have granola bars in the car so that anytime somebody comes to us at a stop sign uh, or a red light, that she has something to give out to them. And it's it's one of the nicest things in the world. But I also stop and wonder how many people actually want a granola bar. Right. And I can't imagine that it's, you know, necessarily a bad thing. And if they don't want it, they can pass it off to somebody else. Um, but we've never asked them, what would you like? And yes, of course, there are many, many different people out there. Um, but what you're doing is sort of asking to highlight and sort of say, these are the voices that should be central before we get to say, well, developers, what can you do to, you know, put more buildings up or to help or to, to do any of that at the high level? I think that's a very important point because people's voices with lived experience are not listened to in general. I think that's something I've been working a lot on within the Jewish community, that every time there is an event organized by the Federation or by any of the shuls in the city, and they're talking about food security or housing security or anything to do with poverty, the rabbis all know I'm going to call them up and I'm going to say, and so do you have a voice of lived experience on this panel? Maybe, maybe you should have that. And so I think gradually they're, they're hearing me, which is really wonderful. And they're hearing other voices that are also saying the same thing. But it's very true that often buildings are developed with no input from the people who will live in them. So, for example, I live with not only a disab disabling illness, but also a disability. So I have certain accessibility needs. Now, it would be great if in the development of apartments and what an accessible apartment looked like, that people like me were actually consulted about what we actually needed. It also goes through the whole process of while buildings are being built to, and another example of that is several of the people I interviewed said they would rather be living in the street than living in a 320 square foot studio. And these were people who lived with either anxiety or PTSD. And I thought, isn't that interesting that all the, all the subsidized housing being built now 
units geared for single people are 320 square feet because that's the minimum stated by Vancouver. However, if there are all these people out there who would rather live on the street than in a 320 square foot studio, then maybe it would be good if there was some communication as to what could improve that situation. There's also one of the things I found having lived in a few subsidized places is the voices of the people living there are not consulted in any aspect. There is a lot of landlord negligence and neglect. There is a lot of abuse. There is a lot of threatening of eviction. There are a lot of laws being broken. So it would be great if tenants were consulted and considered in these types of issues too. And one other thing, Mara, I, I live in I live in Calgary and as I, I head downtown, usually there's like a growing encampment of homeless unhoused people outside this this facility that's called the drop-in center. And it's been growing since the pandemic. And I'm just curious what has happened, evolved over the past two years with the pandemic in terms of unhoused people, in terms of homeless people. Has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? What are the tools and where have we sort of seen the the, the seams coming undone in, in this country? So from the people I've spoken to and also from the data that I've seen coming out, absolutely homelessness is increasing. In terms of the people I spoke to, 80% of the people I interviewed, no matter what the reason that was behind their homelessness, no matter what the story, that they actually had a disability. And when you look at who are becoming homeless, who are unhoused, Increasingly, it's people with disabilities who are unable to work and seniors. Because as rents get higher, people who maybe 5, 10, 15 years ago might have been able to manage on their disability pension or their old age security and CPP, they just can't do it anymore. I met one woman who had worked all her life, was retired, and had been living in a shelter for a year because she'd been working in a low-paying job, didn't have a lot of savings. The savings ran out, and there was no housing she could afford. And so that seems to be one of the growing trends. I was reading on the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness website is senior homelessness. And I'd like to add a little plug if I, if I may, about the Canada Disability Benefit, which made it into its first reading at the federal level and is a disability benefit that would go to people under the age of 65 that would get them more or less up to the level of income of seniors. And when you look at poverty in Canada, which of course is completely connected to housing and homelessness, 40% of people living in poverty in Canada have a disability that prevents them from working. So one of the key things that I think every single individual in Canada can do 
to help with the homelessness situation is to go to their MP and write a letter or talk to them and say, get that bill passed because that will make a huge difference. It will also make a difference to housing providers like Tikva in Vancouver, where people pay 30% of their income as rent. So if someone's on a disability income and they're getting $1,386 a month in rent, in, in sorry, sorry, in, in their pension, then they can't pay that much in rent. But a senior in BC gets a minimum of $1,850. So that means that 30% of their income means they can pay a little bit more, which means take the housing could go a little bit further also. It sounds like the there are still many, many um, uh, problems with the private and public uh, partnership in terms of dealing with this, in terms of the government, as well as Jewish Family Services and various other housing organizations across the country. Um, is that is that actually the case? And uh, is there hope for that, you think? Well, I think, one, absolutely, there are problems. There's also the aspect that organizations need to talk to each other. So for example, there are a hundred there are more than a hundred organizations on the downtown east side that are supporting downtown east side residents. So those few thousand people who are homeless and unhoused in the downtown east side or living in SROs have over a hundred organizations that are supporting them. For people who are homeless and not in that situation, there are virtually no organization supporting them. There's also no one list of all the different housing providers or the different developments. Nobody knows what anybody else is doing. So for example, about two months ago, I found out about an organization that provides up to three months temporary housing for people who were exactly in my situation. But I didn't know about it at the time. Nobody else I knew about it at the time knew. I phoned probably 80 different housing organizations in the city saying, can you help me? Do you know who can help me? And none of them knew anything. So I think that's another big step we could take is just getting people connected, getting the providers connected. Beautiful. Well, um, you know, to bring it back to Sukkot, I, I think one of the, the most central features of a Sukkah is that it's open not only to the elements, but it's open horizontally to people and that we invite guests in and that we um, create that dialogue. And I think that what you're highlighting is um, a feature of what we do here um, within the Jewish community, which is to hopefully have that dialogue between um, people that need and people that are able to uh, help so uh, thank you for that, and uh, hopefully uh, things will be moving in the right direction, um, continuing to moving in the right direction. Mara Shanae, thanks for coming on Bonjour Chai. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been a wonderful experience, and Excellent. I'm so happy you're choosing thank to you. do this topic. Thank you.
Um, you can find links to some of the programs and services that we uh, spoke about, uh, including some of the ones in uh, Vancouver, uh, Toronto, Montreal, and Ottawa, um, which is not to the exclusion of other cities that may or may not have programs. Uh, but you can find links to some of these programs and services that we discussed uh, in the show notes. You can email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca to let us know what you thought. This is it, folks. The last six contestants for the great Canadian Sermon Slam. We had a great run with this. We were so um, amazed at the amount of rabbis that uh, wanted to be part of this. I think our total after today comes to 18 in total. Uh, stay tuned next week to find out who won um, and what we are doing. Uh, maybe we'll have plans for it for a bigger and better one even for next year. Um, but for now, let's Listen to the last six contestants. First up, Dr. Rabanit Rachel Turgenitz was a professor at York University from 2000 to 2010. In 2007, she founded Rachel Center for Torah, Musar, and Ethics. She was also one of the founders of the Toronto Heschel School. She currently serves as clergy at Beit Reim in Thornhill, Ontario. In her sermon, Rachel talks about what happens when our identity, the central story we tell about ourselves to ourselves, is challenged and how we grow from that. I'm going to start with a story about a very famous and controversial figure in our history and in the Talmud. His name was Elisha ben Abuya, but we didn't call him that because he was a heretic. So we called him Acher, the other. And it's really amazing how the ancient world begins othering people. And it starts with Elisha ben Abuya. Here's the story of Elisha ben Abuya. He was a tremendous sage. In fact, he taught Rabbi Meir, who taught Rabbi Akiva. These are very foundational sages. These are the pivots of our rabbis. These are incredible minds, incredible people. And Elisha ben Abuya one day was sitting and relaxing in a field and watched a father and son walk by. And the father said to the son, look up in the tree, there's a nest. Can you go and get me some of the eggs so we can eat? So the son climbs the tree, reaches out to get to the nest. There's the bird sitting in the nest. The mother bird is sitting in the nest. So the son does what the Torah in this Parsha told us to do, chase the bird away. You don't take eggs from under a bird that's callous. Chase the bird away, then you can take the eggs. And so the son, in obeying that commandment, chases the bird away, loses his footing, falls from the tree, breaks his neck, and dies. And Elisha ben Aguia is watching this, and it tells us in that moment, Elisha's faith broke. This is why his faith broke. There are only two commandments in the whole Torah that tell us, if you do it, you'll get a long life. The first one. Honor your father and your mother so that you will live a long life. The second one, chase the bird away from the nest before you take those eggs so you will live a long life. Only two. And Elisha ben Abuya is watching this young man, this boy, fulfill both those commandments at the same moment. His father asked him, go get those eggs. And in getting the eggs, he's obeying the other commandment to chase the bird away. And it's because he's obeying the commandments that he loses his life. And the commandment promised long life. So Elisha ben Abuya breaks his faith in that moment and becomes the heretic. And he becomes a dangerous heretic because he's so well learned. 
He becomes a chair, the other. And when we look and we say, that's, we don't even know how to enter that moment. Because there are many explanations that could be given. One explanation that could be given is this isn't the first time that young man is obeying his father and doing what he's doing. And for all we know, his life was lengthened. We don't know originally what his destiny of how many years he would live would have been. There's too many unknowns, but Alicia doesn't look at any of that because Alicia's identity is to read Torah literally. He's a literalist. That is who he is. His identity sits there. There is no latitude. There is no room for great questioning. It's not who he is. And that's the question that the Parsha is raising this week. What is your identity? Who are you? What do you invest in, in your identity that now becomes defining as it was with Alicia? He could not live the way he did by, sawing, by seeing what he saw. So the Torah begins and says, let's talk about power. What is your identity when you hold power? And it gives us the example of the captive woman. You are the victor. You are the one who is victorious in war. And you look at the captives and a woman catches your eye. And you want that woman, and she's completely powerless. She's a captive from the enemy. The Torah says you are not allowed to just go in there and assert your power. If you truly want her in your life, you take her. You bring her to your home. You back away from her, and you give her time to mourn the life she's leaving behind. You are forcing a new identity onto her. You give her time to transform. You back away and you let her have that process before you bring the new identity to her. And the new identity is going to be your wife. You equalize power. You do not use your power to assert over someone else's identity. And that's where the Torah begins. And then it goes on. And as I said before, this is a wild Parsha. It is all over the place. And everywhere we look, we're questioning, what is that? For instance, one of the very famous commandments we have is Shatnes, and it's here in this week's Parsha. Shatnes is the commandment that tells us we cannot mix linen and wool in our garments. Well, that one makes lots of sense. We can't have a garment that wove linen and wool together. And in fact, when the promenade Promenade Mall in Thornhill was in its heyday thriving with Sears and with all kinds of other big department stores, because of the community they were serving, the Orthodox community in Thornhill, they had a separate section of suits for men where it said it's been checked for shutness so that men could go and purchase those suits knowing they're not mixing wool and linen. Why can't we mix wool and linen? What's the problem with that? And one of the answers I came across is identity confusion. If you have wool, it means you're a shepherd. If you have linen, it means you're a farmer. It's telling someone something about your identity if you're wearing these things. If you mix them, now what you're presenting is confused identity. And everyone looking at you will not know what they're looking at they don't understand. So the statement has nothing to do with the wool and the linen. It has to do with, are you confused in your identity? What are you presenting to people in your identity? And then it goes on and on and talks about, again, relationships of power in your identity. When you are standing with the power, who are you? Are you now taking in that into your identity? And likewise, if you're the victim, are you taking victimhood into your identity? 
And is that who you will now become? And is that who you will now present yourself to be? And the Torah is moving us through all these scenarios that are playing with all of this and ultimately ends by saying, identify evil, identify Amalek and wage war against it. And now we're back at the beginning again, because the very first phrase of the Parsha was, when you go out to wage war, when the power is in your hand, so even when we are fighting evil, the question has to be, who are we and how do we fight it? Does it mean the ends justify the means? Does it mean I can do anything to fight evil? Does it mean I betray my values and my identity because I'm fighting evil, in which case the evil redefined my identity? And the Torah is creating this wonderful circle for us to understand we are sitting in our identities as Alicia Benabuya was. And I realized that we're approaching Rosh Hashanah and Rosh Hashanah has a prayer in it that is really an incredibly powerful moment in the high holidays because the prayer is named for the very first word and the word is Hinani. And it's a word that we get from Torah and it's some anyone we see in Torah stepping up to the moment. When God calls and it's an unknown, what is God going to want from them? And they step up and they say, Hinani, I am here. I am ready. They've stepped out of the shadows and they are ready. And we consider it to be one of the greatest moments Jewishly that we can attain is to be able to arrive at a moment of Hinani. So we prepare ourselves and we can now ask ourselves, are we ready to say, this is who I am. This moment is what matters. And this is how I step up. Next up is Rabbi Jennifer Gorman, a graduate of the Jewish Theological Seminary. She has a diverse background working with the U.S. Navy and civilian communities in both the United States and Canada, from Hawaii to New York, North Carolina, and Toronto. Rabbi Gorman holds a certificate from the Department of the Army in the Spirituality of Trauma. Most recently, she served as Executive Director of Merkaz Canada and the Canadian Foundation for Masorti Judaism. Rabbi Gorman uses her sermon to speak about finding the places of contradiction in our lives and not needing to resolve them. In our 2,000-year-old tradition, we have contradiction. Midrash teaches that before coming to the Israelites, God offered the Torah to many nations. And each time the people would say, tell us what's in it. And as God would begin to tell them what was in the Torah, they would say, oh no, we don't want to follow those rules. And over and over and over this occurred, but when God came to the Israelites, they, along with the Jewish souls of the past and the future, proclaimed, Na'asev Nishma, we will do everything you ask, and later, we will understand it. And Midrash also teaches that after the Israelites complained all the way to Mount Sinai, they too rejected God's Torah, camping as we read, Tahar under the mountain, became literal as God lifted Harsinai above their heads and threatened to drop it, forever burying our people and ending the covenant made with Avraham and Sarah centuries before. So how can these truths both exist simultaneously that we accepted Torah wholeheartedly and without reservation while also rejecting it? They can exist because truth is subjective. Midrash is not history. We will never know if Avraham actually smashed his father's idols or if Pharaoh placed bowls of gems and glowing coals in front of baby Moshe to see if he was the prophesied 
one to leave the Israelites. And yet, these are truths for us. They're truths because they inform us about our ancestry and they lead us on a path to being God's people and fulfilling God's mission for us in the world. Our world has had a few really hard years. And throughout it, many of us have felt sadness and frustration and hope and gratitude and loneliness and anxiety and compassion and depression and so much more. And we have emerged and we have retreated. And we have at times literally stepped out into the sun only to be forced back into our homes by the dark shadow of COVID. This has left us eagerly waiting to embrace others, to travel, to do things, and at the same time, in many cases, too scared to move forward. But for many, there were also positive moments and lessons. Some families recreated multi-generational homes, grandparents, parents, children living together. Flex time and remote work became a reality where they weren't before. Communities came out in support of essential and frontline workers. New rituals emerged. The quiet in the world allowed us to see that the damage to our environment can be reversed. New bonds and relationships were formed through Google and Teams and Zoom and all sorts of technology. And these moments contradict our understandable anger, fear, frustration. It's difficult to embrace the positives when we have loved ones and acquaintances dealing with long COVID, where others have lost their health or their lives and where the daily anxiety has and still does take its toll. As a result of these continuing con contradictions, we are changed. Individuals, families, friends, communities, cultures, countries, all of us, we are all changed. And whether it is how we use technology or our heightened knowledge of the importance of human contact, from the youngest to the oldest, the generations alive now are forever changed. We are survivors. We are the people that stood under the threat of that mountain and cried out, Na'asevanishma. We will accept and do this now, and we will come to understand it in the future. We will inhabit these contradictions as they inhabit us. We will accept the words we recited on, Yom, on Rosh Hashanah, Mi umi yamut, who will live and who will die, who will live by fire, by water, by sword, by beast, by hunger or thirst, by earthquake or plague. The Unetana Tokef is not merely a list of ways our lives are shortened. It is also a message about how to live. We may be at peace or we may be troubled, we may be serene or disturbed. Some will be brought low and some will be raised up. This year, let us choose life. And in doing so, we will accept and embrace the contradictions of our world. We will allow ourselves to appreciate the chaos that led us to pray outdoors in beautiful settings. We will thank God for the blessing of science. We will accept that in a world that is tearing itself apart, 
due to racism, anti-Semitism, and other prejudices that we, we can act better. During the pandemic, people sang on their balconies to amuse their neighbors. Graduations, b'nai mitzvah, weddings, and even funerals were held on live stream and Zoom, and they allowed people to attend and participate from around the world. And even as COVID separated us and isolated us, it also brought us together, making the world smaller and more intimate. And as we move forward, let us ask, who will live in loneliness? And who will respond to it? Who will despair at the state of the world? And who will work to make it a better place? Who will be brought low? And who will raise those people up? We can use our power for good and not evil. We can influence the world in positive ways. We can raise people up. We can heal the environment. We can keep in touch with our family and our friends and remind them of their great value in our lives. We can be present and positive for others. We can reach out to loved ones when we need someone to be present, present and positive for us. Rabbi Menachem Creditor, a colleague and a friend, wrote a short song for his daughter who was born right after 9-11 2001. It's about reaching for hope in the future, and I'd like to share it with you. The words are Olam Chesed Yibaneh, about building a world of steadfast loving kindness. Olam chesed yibane, I will build this world from love. And you must build this world from love. And if we build this world from love, then God will build this world from love. There was a mountain hanging over our heads. We stepped up, Naase. Now it's time we've moved forward, Nishma. Shana Tova Umituka. Tikatevu 
may we all be written and sealed for a good and sweet year. Next, we have Rabbi Irit Prince. Rabbi Prince was born in Bucharest, Romania. Her family made Aliyah, but left Israel in 1985 and settled in Canada. She was ordained by the Jewish Theological Seminary and has worked for USY Canada. She currently serves as the rabbi at B'nai Shalom Vitikva in Ajax, Ontario. Rabbi Rit presents us with a moving, personal moment of vulnerability that asks us to question ourselves and our assumptions about those around us. His name is Dylan. He is 18, maybe 19 years old. He moved to Toronto to be near his son, William. He positively lights up when he talks about William. But when I first see Dylan, I know none of this. In fact, I don't even see what he looks like. I'm at a very long stoplight, drumming my fingers impatiently on the steering wheel. I feel like I can't breathe. I haven't worked in over a year. I ran through all my savings and my retirement account. I maxed out my credit cards and I took out a loan. A month before, I completely ran out of money. I am sitting in the car, obsessively going over the various things I could do to get a job. I've applied to anything remotely qualified for, including a night shift at the local Tim Hortons. I am sitting at this particular light because I just picked up my first welfare check and I'm on my way back home. I am feeling humiliated beyond belief. I call myself a failure and a loser. I figure I've just hit rock bottom. So I don't notice the person standing near the stoplight. But it's a really long light and I've been staring blindly in his general direction for a couple of minutes. So the sign he is holding finally comes into focus. Please, it says, I need some food. Thank you. Later, I'll find out no one had stopped all day. Later, I'll find out he hadn't eaten in two days. But at that moment, it was just a sign that tugged at me, that please, that thank you. The light turns green and we start to move. And I tell myself what I suspect most people tell themselves as they drive by people like Dylan. I can't stop now anyway. The traffic will bottle up. He probably just wants money. Maybe he's an alcoholic or a drug addict. I really don't have anything to give anyway for crying out loud I am on welfare. But as I'm driving by, I glance at his face. The look in his eyes makes me cry. He has the eyes of an old man. He is beyond begging. Have you ever seen someone who truly feels hopeless? He doesn't even look desperate. I think you need to feel some spark of hope in order to be desperate. He's beyond acceptance. His eyes are as empty as mine were not 30 seconds before. It's as if the sign he is holding stays up by force of habit. I'm still crying as I make a U-turn and stop by the light. I invite him to lunch and he picks the subway store across the road. He thinks he was born in Manitoba but isn't sure. After his father died, the family moved around a lot. Then his older brother went to jail and then his mother died. All he really knows is wandering around the country. He has no idea, no ID, so he was told he can't get welfare, which is not actually true, but he accepted the information passively, which seems to be his approach to everything. He sleeps in an abandoned warehouse. He doesn't like shelters, he says. They pick on the younger guys. He used to be able to get day jobs, but no one seems to be hiring. I think back at the 50-some-odd positions I applied to the week before, and I nod in agreement. It begins to occur to me that I have no idea what rock bottom truly means. 
In a typical sermon, this is the point where I'm supposed to have an epiphany or the point where I manage to help this kid turn his life around. I just wish it was that simple. Maybe I'm supposed to say something like, there but for the grace of God go I, but that wouldn't be a particularly accurate statement. Perhaps, there but for the grace of my friends, who saw me sliding into the abyss and grabbed my hand in time. Or, there but for the grace of my parents, who took me in no questions asked and allowed me to sleep for a month before I started looking for work again. Or even there but for the grace of the Canadian government, who didn't care that I hadn't lived in Canada in 10 years, but offered a helping hand when I needed it most. The difference between Dylan and I is not God's grace. The difference between us lies in our safety nets, in a community we can call our own. I have my friends, my family, and government. Dylan has no one. He has fallen through the cracks and no one has even noticed. I had people looking out for me, who noticed when things went wrong, who made sure I was okay. Dylan has a brother who is possibly out of jail, <clears throat> a son he hadn't seen in two years, and no friends to speak of. Earlier that day, my caseworker mentioned the Jewish organization, JFCC, JFSS, I can look it up for you, she offered, a, a Jewish organization that helps people in need. I didn't tell her that it was JFCS, Jewish Family and Child Services, or that I had no intention of contacting them. She must have seen something on my face, though, because she told me that she finds it puzzling that none of her Jewish clients want to approach JFCS for help. She was wondering why that was the case. Her Christian clients always prefer dealing with religious charities. Why don't the Jews prefer the same? Why do they avoid Jewish networks? Why do they avoid kosher food pantries? It occurs to me that Dylan has few choices. His social safety net simply does not exist. I was sad for him, but I was also comfortable helping him. This is a role I'm familiar with, one that validates my self-narrative. After all, I'm a rabbi. I am a provider for those in need. I give charity. I help. I am not the one who needs help or charity. Except I unequivocally did need the help. Except so do too many other Jews. Unemployment in Canada is at 6%. Jews are not exempt from that. Even the employed are not exempt from significant financial challenges. Chances are someone you know is suffering from serious financial strain right now. Someone you know might be facing losing their home. Someone you know is making a decision to pay rent instead of buying medicine. Someone you know is probably driving out of their neighborhood to go to a food bank where they are not likely to run into anyone they know. Because we Jews are the givers of charity, not the ones who depend on it. We are very proud, and rightly so, of our heritage of providing for the have-nots, but we never think that these have-nots might be someone we actually know. I had been fasting since I was 12 years old, but it was only that year, in 2010, that I began associating Yom Kippur with hunger, with real hunger. Did you know that roughly 24,000 people die of hunger each day around the world? Think of the outpouring of grief and outrage at the September 11 terrorist attacks where fewer than a sixth of this number died. And this happens every day, day in and day out. We live in a country that is consistently rated by the UN as one of the best places to live in. Yet over a million of our children live below the poverty line 
and millions more live in families that suffer from food insecurity. These children often go to school hungry, unable to concentrate and learn, and thereby perpetuating the cycle of poverty. Almost 5 million people live below the poverty line here in Canada, a line that stands at an income of roughly $22,000 a year, or $35,000 for a family of two. Many of these people go hungry most of the time. Tomorrow, we will again read the Haftarah from Isaiah 58, just as we do every year. Is such the fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is not this rather the fast that I have chosen, to loose the chains of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring the poor who are cast out to your house, when you see the naked, that you cover him, that you hide not yourself from your own flesh? This year I hear the words that you hide not yourself from your own flesh, and I think about how long I hid from myself, just how much trouble I was in. I think about how long it took to accept the help that was offered. I think about how easy it was to share my bread with a hungry stranger, and how difficult it was to admit hunger. How easy it was to help the poor, and how difficult it was to admit I was poor. I also think about how hard it seems to be for Jewish communities to admit that hunger is an actual issue for some of our own people. I spent that afternoon helping Dylan find a doorway into the system, and I sincerely hope that he was caught in the net, but I am not holding my breath. That isn't how the story ends for most people like Dylan. Similarly, I wish there was an easy way to make it okay for other Jews to help, to ask for help. I wish that just hearing me talk about this might help, but I admit that it is not likely. The patterns of our behaviors, the way we look at the world, these are deeply ingrained. It is hard to shift our gaze, to begin looking at things in a radically different way than we are used to. My stomach was churning with anxiety as I wrote this sermon, and it is twisting as I deliver it. I realize that seven years later, I am still so far from feeling okay with the position I found myself in. It isn't just that my self-image felt battered then, it's that I still feel like a loser for going through that ordeal in the first place, an ordeal I had no control over whatsoever. I thought long and hard about sharing this story with you. I admit I worry about being judged by my community. I worry about how sharing this with everyone would affect my life. What will a potential future boss think of me if she reads this? What would my friends think? What would my congregation think? But I keep reminding myself that I have a community where so many others do not. And it is my job to leverage that into real change, into real opportunities to make a difference. Let's work together to make sure the Dillons of the world are caught in our safety nets and also make sure that our fellow tribe people get the help that they need before they fall through the cracks. There, but for the grace of the community, go we all. Aaron Rotenberg is next up. Aaron is from Toronto and is currently studying towards ordination through Aleph, the Alliance for Jewish Renewal. Since 2017, he has been the spiritual director of the Annex Shul Congregation in downtown Toronto. 
Aaron presents us with a dense poetic meditation on our failings and potentials as humans. I am asleep. I am asleep in the synagogue, but my heart is awake. I am lighting candles before the holiday, measuring wicks in the cemetery, gathering mushrooms outside of the city, telling people what I think they don't want to hear. I am under a cherry tree that grows while I, while I sleep. The voice of my beloved comes knocking. Open to me. I open the machsor, but can only say the names of the letters, or arrange the words into to-do lists. I breathe in, nostrils expanding, erech apaim, reaching out, cracking and breaking, knock, knock, knocking. I've done things I'm not proud of, but can I say them all? Aleph, bet, gimel, finalize and print lists, kaf, lamed, mem, pick up machsors, and then... Who is this man-king judging me in the sky when I know that you, dear one, are here with me in the dark earth, in the web of soil and fungi? I plant a sapling in you, a cherry tree, for the birds, but a spirit, or maybe a squirrel, snaps it in two. I find it in the morning, hanging by a thread of bark. Am I so deeply grieved about the plant that I want to die? We are all hanging by a hair. Who will live? in these realms of love, encountering blunt terror, passing shades, dreams that fly. I try to run away or press play on the next episode, and the melody picks up. And you come roaring back with something to say, with the wind, from your seat of compassion, the dark earth and grass between my feet, carrying blessings of peace for Nineveh, for Toronto, this street, this uncomfortable seat, and the many animals besides. Up now is Rabbi Micah Streifer. Rabbi Streifer grew up in South Louisiana and was ordained at the Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion. He is a corresponding member of the Central Conference of American Rabbis Responsa Committee, which deliberates on matters of Jewish law for the Reform Movement, is a member of the Rabbinic Advisory Councils for New Israel Fund Canada and Jewish Veg. In 2011, Micah became the rabbi of Kol Ami, a Reformed Jewish community in Toronto. In his sermon, Rabbi Streifer struggles with his congregation to understand why God made a world that is so full of suffering. We live in a world in which people suffer. We live in a world in which we lose loved ones and get sick and go through hard times. We lose our jobs. We find ourselves in unhealthy relationships. We have injuries and betrayals and failures. Certainly the world is not only a place of suffering. It is a place of goodness and holiness and triumph. But the world is also a place of suffering. And since time immemorial, people have been trying to understand what to do with that fact. We could look at Greek mythology or Eastern philosophy or the stories of the Bible, or we could look in the prayer books in our hands. The High Holy Days are a time of asking just this kind of question. Who shall live and who shall die? Who by fire and who by water? 
that imagery of the book of life, that image of God standing on high and writing our fate, is at its core an acknowledgement of our deep-seated awareness that we live in an uncertain world, that none of us get to control the hand that we're dealt, that no human being will ever get to shuffle off this mortal coil, as Hamlet puts it, without picking up some bumps and bruises along the way. It's one of the challenging facts of life. We don't get to bypass the hard parts. How then are we supposed to respond to this human truth? How are we supposed to go about living in a world where we know we will experience pain and loss? A beautiful answer to that question comes from the Magid of Dubnov, a masterful Hasidic preacher of the 18th century. He gives his message in the form of a story. He says there once was a king who owned a large, beautiful ruby. He was extraordinarily proud of this jewel. It had no equal anywhere. And he would spend hours each day admiring it, turning it around and around in his hands so that he could see the sunlight reflecting off of its edges. But one day, as the king was admiring his stone, he accidentally dropped it. It hit the floor, and it sustained a deep scratch on one side. Now, needless to say, the king was sorely distressed about this. He wanted his ruby repaired. And so he called in the most skilled craftspeople and offered great rewards to the one who could remove the imperfection, to the one who could return the stone to its previous beauty. And one by one, they all tried, buffing and shining and polishing, but no one could remove the blemish. After some time, a gifted artisan came from a faraway land. He said, Your Majesty, I promise not only to repair your stone, but to make it even more beautiful than it was before. The king was skeptical, but what did he have to lose? His stone was already scratched. He entrusted his ruby to the artisan and provided the necessary tools. And after a week, the man returned with the gem. The excited king took it in his hands, turned it round and round, and saw that the artisan had been telling the truth. The gem was indeed more beautiful than it had ever been, but in a surprising way. The artisan hadn't managed to remove the scratch. That had proved impossible. Rather, with superb skill, he had engraved a beautiful rose into the side of the ruby, and he had used the scratch to make the stem. Now, the message of the story is probably obvious. We can't buff out life's challenges. We can't shine away our suffering or the blemishes that we get from that suffering. Like the scratch in the ruby, they will always remain a part of who we are. But if we look at them from a certain angle, we can see that they actually make us even more beautiful than we were before. I mean, would we really want to live in a world where nothing ever went wrong, where everything was safe and simple, where the ruby never got scratched and we never got hurt? As tempting as that is, we probably wouldn't choose it. Because like the artisan in the story, we know that our bumps and our bruises and our adversities are precisely how we grow. They are precisely how we become stronger, wiser, more capable versions of ourselves. We know that our development as human beings happens not in spite of our hardships, but because of them. And finally, Rabbi Yael Splansky. 
Originally from Boston, Rabbi Yael was ordained at Hebrew Union College. She has served Holy Blossom Temple in Toronto since 1998 as assistant, then associate, and since 2014 as senior rabbi. She's a vice president of the CCAR, has edited a Sidur, and authored a commentary on Deuteronomy. In her sermon, Rabbi Splansky takes a cue from an ancient Luntzman, Rabbi Arya Leib, the Zeta of Shpola, to help us with the tools we need to communicate with God. My family name is today pronounced Splansky, but we have reason to believe that it was just three generations before me pronounced Shpuliansky. The ski at the end of a surname indicates where a family comes from, and Shpola is a city in today's Ukraine. The most influential Jew from Shpola was a disciple of the Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Aryeh Leib, known as the Zaidi of Shpola. And this story is told about him. A famine struck the region of Shpola during the 1780s. The Russian rabbinate wrote the renowned Sadiq, the Shpola Zaidi, to intercede on behalf of the Jews of the region. The Shpola Zaidi sent word to 10 leading rebbes, instructing them to come to Shpola to act as a tribunal. He, the Shpola Zaidi, was taking the Almighty God to court. The appointed day arrived and the great luminaries had been instructed to fast for three solid days and not to divert their minds from prayer and supplication. The court convened. The Shpola then stated his case. The Almighty God is negligent of his duties. If the Jewish people are the children of God, it is the obligation of the parent to provide for the needs of the children. Moreover, he said, if the Jewish people are servants to the Almighty God, it is incumbent upon the master to feed the servants. According to Jewish law, the master may claim that the servants are not doing their appointed tasks, and that may be true. We may be falling short of our tasks, but that is of little consequence according to the law. Nowhere is it written that a master is ever absolved of his responsibility to take care of his servants. And so I, the Shpola Zaidi, therefore demand that the Almighty God, who is both parent and master to us all, fulfill his obligations and provide sustenance by bringing an end to this famine. With that, the tribunal began their deliberations. And after some time, an hour, or some say a week, the decision was rendered. God was found guilty of negligence and was required by the authority of the tribunal of the 10 great rabbis of the region to take back responsibility and care for the Jewish people. No more than three days passed and word came that many tons of wheat were now on their way from the Siberian steppes. The price of grain immediately dropped in anticipation of the new shipment and the famine became a distant and unpleasant memory. Now this story may be theologically shocking to some. Such chutzpah, such irreverence to put the Almighty God on trial. 
And yet, the Zaydi of Shvola takes up a long-standing Jewish tradition of putting God on trial. From Abraham, who stood his ground and demanded, Chalila lecha, far be it from you, O God, to destroy the innocent of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah together with the wicked. All the way down to Eli Wiesel, who in our lifetimes tells of the night when God was put on trial in the barracks of Auschwitz. At the root of this tradition is a deeply human, and I would suggest a dignified response to danger. There are many other ways that people can act out in response to perceived or real threats. This response, a legal response, a theological response, acknowledges our desperation, our exasperation with a circumstance that threatens our very lives. And the response acknowledges that we are not God that we have done all that we can and then we have hit a wall, which marks the end of human capacity for change. And beyond that wall of human influence is what we call God's domain. The response acknowledges that we are people of faith who believe that there is a God who is good and who hears our prayers. On these high holy days, we cry out, Shma Koleinu, hear our voice. Chus v'rachem aleinu, spare us and have compassion upon us. Accept our prayers, for you are the Almighty One who listens to prayer and supplications. Do not turn us away empty-handed, we sing. Be gracious and answer us. Did the wheat from the Siberian steppes come because God was called to task by the tribunal of rabbis? Did the trial restore God's ability to hear the prayers of the people? Or would the wheat have been delivered eventually even without that trial? But the deliberations and the prayers gave people the uplift and the courage, the capacity to hang on just a little while longer until something shifted, something gave way in human history, until the shipment of grain reached Shpola. Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav used to say, life makes warriors of us all. To emerge victorious, we must arm ourselves with the most potent weapon, and that weapon is prayer. This Yom Kippur, this holiest of days, each of us comes with recognition that we are not God. Each of us comes to cultivate a relationship with God who is good and hears our prayers. Each one of us comes with the capacity to see that our human efforts can take us so far. And then there is another realm beyond. So yes, let us find our way to greater human efforts, efforts of the spirit that can move us from our deeds to our prayers, 
until something gives way. Let us pray as if our lives depended on it. We do not pray in order that God will change the physical world. We do not pray for miraculous deliverances from the waves that threaten our lives and the lives of our loved ones. We pray instead that we ourselves will be strengthened and transformed so that we in turn can indeed transform this world of ours. Rabbi Ferdinand Isserman, who led Holy Blossom Temple from 1925 to 1929, taught that prayer invites God's presence to suffuse our spirits, God's will to prevail in our lives. Prayer may not bring water to parched fields or mend a broken bridge or rebuild a ruined city, or even, I would add, bring an end to a pandemic. But, Rabbi Isserman concludes, prayer can indeed water an arid soil, mend a broken heart, rebuild a weakened will, and I would add, heal a weary world. Can you hear that song? May it be God's will. Good yantif. Okay, so now you've heard them all. We really want to know which you thought were the standout sermons, which moved you, which made you laugh, which made you cry. Email us with votes at bonjour at thecjn.ca and we will announce a winner next week. It is Nachas time, that moment when we talk about something that gave us some, if not all, of the feels. Alana, what's your Nachas this week? I had a very fun Jewish uh, acting experience yesterday. I can't talk about what the project is, but it was such a funny and so Montreal Jewish time. So have you ever heard of the term ADR, Avi? Do you know what that is? Uh, No, enlighten me. So ADR is when uh, once they've filmed a, a TV show or a movie, They'll bring it into a studio and then they'll re-record certain lines that might have gotten muffled during the recording. And then they bring in a group of people who uh, are called a loop group, I discovered this week because I was part of one yesterday, um, that they provide all of the crowd set, like conversation and sound. So on the day of filming, they want to make sure they're getting the best sound possible. So they actually mute all the extras. And then they get, you know, a group of people, like five, eight people, and you improvise conversations. And then they take those and layer them. And that is actually what you're hearing when you're watching your movie or your show. So there is a Jewish themed show that's coming out that took place in Montreal. And it was a group of us and we just improvised being at this uh, Simcha and it was so funny because you know you don't get to hear every single thing that you'll hear like bits and pieces so you went from being like oh Uncle Morty I'm so sorry to hear about your leg and then and then you turn to the next person and suddenly you're like a pregnant woman and you just kept changing characters every couple minutes but it was so fun I had such a good laugh try the brisket yeah Morty try the brisket It was just so funny because we were all so committed to it. And some of the stories just got so nonsensical about, you know, I'm so sorry about your grandfather. And then it turned out that he was poisoned. There was like a murder mystery going on. We had a great, great time. And uh, once the show's out, I'll let you know what it is. David, what's your nachas? Well, this is a time of regrowth and uh, renewal. So I wanted to bring up my rebirth day. On October 16th um, of 1997, 
I successfully had my liver transplant at the Children's Hospital 25 years ago, and I wanted to celebrate this rebirthday, but I also wanted to give thanks to my surgeons, Dr. Trevankoff, Dr. Laberge, all the other doctors, the nurses, Monica, who spent weeks with me in intensive care, uh, and the entire team at the Montreal Children's Hospital. Thank you for, for ushering me and my family through a very challenging time in our lives. That sounds beautiful. I, you know, I can make a joke about always needing a liver transplant after all these holidays, but I think that is a uh, beautiful and touching. <laughs> you, and you can go for can, that joke. Can Abby, go for if that you one. Want. Okay. Yeah, please. Uh, I, I didn't know that you can, can. Can you just sign up for one voluntarily and as a preventative measure? <laughs> um, but you know, the technology is getting so much better that hopefully one day, you know, everyone can just get a liver whenever they need it. Just regrow it in a lab. We are not there yet. Uh, but hopefully in the future, one day, it will be much simpler and easier for everyone to have. I like my liver chopped with onions on top of it. That's generally like... You know, my mother, she cannot eat chopped liver anymore since since I had that transplant. She was like, it's out of my house. Can't do it anymore. Oh my gosh. Avi, what's Has that become us? like your spirit animal? <laughs> chopped liver? <laughs> chopped liver? I, um, it tastes good That's with onions. That's a bad omen. It's never... That's what I said. You're, you're, what am I, chopped liver? Apparently, actually, yes. <laughs> Apparently. My nachas, my nachas. So um, there was a book that was, uh, just came out called Be Fruitful, The Etrogue in Jewish Art, Culture, and History. It was edited by Joshua Teplitsky, Warren Klein, and Sharon Lieberman Mintz. It's from a very small publisher in Israel called Mineged Press. I have yet to be able to obtain a copy in my hands but it is a beautiful book it is a remarkable book it has um i've seen uh, a lot of pages from it i saw the book launch where they described and discussed a lot of the ideas in the book i um i'm just like great they did a whole book about the etrog and its place in cu- jewish culture um in jewish material culture in jewish thought um this is the type of thing that we should be doing out more we're putting out more right i have a i have a book on the history of haroset that, that i read around pesach time there's a book about the etrog now and we should be looking at more areas like this and be able to study them um so uh, my nachas for this week and if anybody can get me a help on finding a copy because i cannot seem to obtain a copy in canada right now um it's called be fruitful the etrog in jewish art culture and history and that's our show. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending October 15th, Shabbat Chol HaMoed Sukkot. Ooh, it's getting windy. This show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. Our executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour. You can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is one of the best ways we get new listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. Join author Karen Levine in marking the 20th anniversary of the extraordinary true story behind her beloved children's book, Hannah's Suitcase. You'll hear how the curator of a small Holocaust museum in Japan wound up on an incredible global journey, searching for a young girl named Hannah Brady. Sunday, October 30th at 2 p.m. at Beth Emmett Synagogue in Toronto. To learn more and register for free, visit beby.org event OCT30.